odd way to start a sermon. Stay with me. In the 60s, there were a lot of folks who advocated for parents just to let kids be who they are. Let them just do whatever. Uh, Some even sought to criminalize the spanking of children. I assure you, my parents were not among those who held to that idea. (laughs) And contrary to what some people might think, I turned out pretty good. So before we go any further, though, let me... um, Let me say to someone today, this sermon is not about how to raise your kids. But the truth is, whether we're talking about raising children or any other function of life we perform, our universe is built and functions on and around certain natural laws. The one specifically that applies to what we're talking about today is the law of cause and effect. The simple definition of cause and effect is that if you perform a certain action, it will bring about a certain result. So there's a cause, and then there's an effect. And what that translates to in in everyday life and in our spiritual lives as well is that there are consequences for everything we do. That's why many of us got spanked so much as, as when we were kids. Our parents told us that if you do this, there would be consequences. But wrong actions didn't always result in spanking. Sometimes our parents said things like, if you pull the dog's tail, he's going to bite you. And if we pulled the dog's tail, the dog bit us. We saw the effect of our actions. Unfortunately, it seems that our society has devolved to a place where many people refuse to take responsibility for their actions. It's a a mindset where people feel like they don't have to pay for consequences for bad behavior. Basically, it's an attitude of entitlement. It's an attitude of If I don't want to work, then someone should still give me money. If I want to spend all my money on destructive behavior, then someone should still take care of me and support me. And I will tell you that in the scripture passage we're going to read today, the Apostle Paul told the Christians in the church at Thessalonica that that was not the way we are to live as Christians. Over the past several weeks, we have looked at the concept of making choices in life what we sometimes refer to as coming to a crossroad in life or a fork in the road. In other words, a place in our life, every one of us reached those places at some time in our life, sometimes a lot in our life, but a place in our life where we have to make a choice. Unlike Yogi Berra, who said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. In real life, when we come to a fork in the road... We have to make a choice. And we will make those choices with the understanding that there are, or at least will be, consequences to our choices. And and while this might not be very popular in, in culture, in a cultural sense, I can assure you that understanding that there are consequences to everything we do is important in spiritual growth. Let me say that again. We need to understand that everything, there are consequences to everything we do in order to grow spiritually. It's important because once we realize that every decision or action we take has a positive or a less than positive or an outright negative effect, we will begin to understand that doing right is not just a fruit of our spiritual growth, it's also in our best overall interest. We just end up a whole lot better if we make the right choices. 
Sometimes we, we tend to look at the negative side of consequences, but the truth is there are consequences for both the good and the bad choices we make. I believe that the writer of Psalm 102.2 understood that there is this continuous promise of blessing in doing the right thing for God. The, David wrote, praise the Lord, I tell myself, and never forget the good things that he does for me. In other words, while there are negative consequences for not living a life that glorifies God, there are tremendous benefits as Christians when we live our way, lives in the way the Bible commands. Again, it's still a choice. You say, well, I, I thought that series on choices ended last week. Well, it did. But what I found out that is every time I sit down to write something out, I realize how much of every bit of our life is about choices. Every day we are faced with choices to do the right thing, to do the wrong thing. It's, it's not like we get saved and, and we get on this path that all of a sudden just everything just opens up in front of us and all the good doors open up. No, we still come to those places, that fork in the road, where we have to decide, am I going to do this or am I going to do this? Knowing in our mind that there are consequences for the choice that we make. With that, let's go to our scripture text for today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the people in a town called Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, if you would like to pronounce it that way. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, I ask you to pray for us. Pray first that the Lord's message will spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes, just as when we came to you. Pray, too, that we will be saved from wicked and evil people, for not everyone believes in the Lord. But the Lord is faithful. He will make you strong and guard you from the evil one. And we are confident in the Lord that you are practicing the things that we commanded you and that you always will. May the Lord bring you into an ever-deeper understanding of the love of God and the endurance that comes from Christ. Paul began this last section of his letter to the Thessalonian church with the words, finally, dear brothers and sisters, we ask you to pray for us. His prayer consisted of, of basically two parts. First, he said, I, I, I pray, ask that you would pray that the gospel message would spread to those who have not heard it yet, and that it would be believed by them as it had been believed by, by you people in, in Thessalonica. So that was the first part of Paul's prayer. The second part of Paul's prayer was that deliverance from faithless, wicked, and evil people. Paul was very familiar with wicked and, and evil people. If we read about Paul's life, we see that he had encountered these enemies of the gospel among both the Jews and the Gentiles all throughout his missionary journeys. If anybody knew wicked and evil people, it was the Apostle Paul. He had been one, so he understood it firsthand. And then when he became a Christian... All the evil and, and wicked people didn't go away. He still had to deal with them then. Then in verse 3, we see that Paul begins with the word, but. This little word is so powerful because it sets up a contrast between subjects, between two subjects. And it's a word that we really should learn to place in our life and in our reflection of life. And that is a little aside here. But think about this. If we could use this word in the way that it's meant to be used, Lord, I've struggled. Lord, I've been there have been times when I didn't know what to do. Lord, there were times when I felt all alone. Lord, there were times 
when I didn't know how I was going to pay the bills. But you were with me in the struggle. You gave me peace and gave me wisdom. You let me know that you would never leave me. And you always provided a way, even when I couldn't see a way. Tiny little word. And so many times we get stuck on the first part of telling the Lord all the things that have happened. And if we forget to come back and finish it, but you were faithful. You provided. And I find myself from time to time just taking for granted all the things that God has done for me because it's a lot easier to complain sometimes than it is to give thanks. But there are those times when I have to stop, when I just become completely overwhelmed and I have to just stop and say, but God, you have never left me. You have always made a way. Here in Thessalonians, Paul used this word, but, to set up a contrast between two subjects as well. In this case, it was between the faithful, faithlessness of the wicked and evil people he had just spoken of and the faithfulness of God. These people are wicked, but God, you are always faithful. And because of the Lord's faithfulness in the past, Paul was confident in three things. He was confident, first of all, that the Lord would strengthen the Thessalonians, enabling them to stand firm in the middle of their trials and tribulations and temptations. Secondly, he was confident that God would guard or protect them from the attacks of Satan. And then because of their commitment to Christ, Paul was confident that the Lord, that they would continue to follow all of the commands that he had taught them all of the things that he had told them, that they would continue in that. So he believed that they would strengthen, be guarded, and that they would continue. Then he goes on in verse 5, and he expresses a combination of, of prayer and desire for these people in Thessalonica. His prayer and desire was that the Lord would clear the way of obstacles in the Thessalonians' hearts so that they would have an ever-increasing appreciation for God's love for them. Sometimes we get so bound up and we get so caught up with, with obstacles in our heart that we just lose sight of how good God is. And Paul was saying, remove those obstacles from their heart. Give them a better understanding, a deeper understanding. When Paul referenced patient endurance, he was saying that the steadfastness and the patient perseverance that Christ showed while he was on earth was the example that the Thessalonians and us today should follow when we're facing trials. Too many times when we're facing difficult times, it's easy for us to run around, the, the sky is falling. What am I going to do? And Paul is saying, patient endurance. Look at what God has already done. Patiently endure what you're going through. And that means in the times when we don't understand the life stuff that is happening around us or in our lives, we pray and trust the Lord to lead our hearts to a place of understanding, a place where we understand the love of God, where we understand the steadfastness of Christ, knowing that we too can stand firm and endure with patience if we will just choose to do that. 
It's a choice. Let's go on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command with the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty strong lead up to a command. Stay away from any Christian who lives in idleness and doesn't follow the tradition of hard work we gave you. For we know that you ought to follow our example. We were never lazy when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that you would not be, we would not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't that we didn't have the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this rule, whoever does not work should not eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and wasting time meddling in other people's business. Oh boy. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we appeal to such people. No, we command them, settle down and get to work. Earn your own living. And preach. And I say to the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they'll be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but speak to them as you would to a Christian who needs to be warned. Based on these verses, it seems that there was some confusion among the Thessalonian church as to the the timing of the second coming of Christ. And this confusion seems to have resulted in some misconduct by some of these Christians. These were Christians he was talking about. And the situation was so significant that Paul issues this strong command to the church in the full authority of in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said, that's a pretty powerful command. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 14, we, we read that Paul had written to the Thessalonians to warn those who were lazy or who refused to work. Other translations describe them as those who were idle and disruptive. And while some of those who Paul was writing about seemed to be lazy, there appeared to have been others who just stopped working because they thought the Lord was going to return. They had the mindset of, well, the Lord's going to come back any time now. Why should I work? I'll just sit back and wait. You say, well, that's silly. I've seen that in my lifetime. When I was a small boy, I remember there was family of ours that they sold everything because the Lord's coming back, you know, like next month. And so they sold everything and just stopped everything. You know what? That's not how it works. And that's what Paul was saying here. Isn't it amazing how people haven't changed a whole lot since thousands of years ago? But they were saying, if, if the Lord's coming back, and we believe you, Paul, that, and you said that, but we'll just, we'll just stop working. And if that attitude wasn't bad enough, it seems that since these people weren't busy working, didn't have anything else to do, in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, we read that they were disrupting the church by meddling in other people's business. Well, since I don't have a job anymore, I'm going to go over and stick my nose in your business. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen in church today? Warren Wiersbe described what happened like this in a commentary. He said, they had time on their hands and gossip on their lips, but they defended themselves by arguing, the Lord is coming soon. 
Paul's command to these people was to work quiet, quietly and orderly so they can earn their own food rather than depending on the labor of others to meet their needs. A wise church leader once said, if you find your nose constantly in other people's business, you are probably underemployed. Somebody will get that later on this afternoon. Now, let me be clear about a couple things here. The New Testament does teach the imminent or, or any moment possibility of the return of Christ for his church. We do believe that. So while we know that the return of Christ is imminent, here's what we also need to factor into the equation. The Bible is also clear that nobody knows when that's going to be. It could be today, but it might not be. That's been the case for hundreds of years, thousands of years. The principle that we need to gain from Paul's writing is that we need to live as if it could be today while working and continuing life as though it won't be for years. There's still a whole bunch of people outside in this community who, who don't know Jesus. And if we just stop and say, well, the Lord's going to come back anytime soon. I'm just going to make sure I'm ready. That's great that you're going to make sure you're ready. But what about all the people that we've been called to go share the gospel with? We still have that commandment. As we have seen, the, the contact, conduct of the lazy and idle people that Paul wrote about here in 2 Thessalonians was in direct defiance to some of his earlier teaching. And now, because he had taught them this and they were just absolutely ignoring it, he issued a command with a specific disciplinary action to be taken. He told them to disassociate themselves from the lazy, disruptive idlers that were among them. Now, keep in mind, this was not excommunication and kicking them out of the church. Instead, it was to show the, the, the congregation's disapproval of their, of their conduct and cause these people to return, to repent, to reform, and correct their contact and then be restored. These individuals were to be warned as brothers, not treated as enemies. This is important, y'all. They were doing wrong, but they weren't to kick them out. I can tell you this is an area where the church has failed historically. Too many times those who have faltered in their walk with God have been kicked out as opposed to being reformed and restored. In the church today, honest love and effort must work together with the restoration of those who have gone off track in any number of ways. I've said this before and I'll say it again. In the church, it seems that we are about the only ones who shoot our wounded. Somebody slips and falls, and rather than try to pick them up and get them back on track, we just stomp on them while they're down. It's not what Paul was saying. Instead, he was saying, let them know that they're wrong, but then restore them. Do the right thing in front of them so that they know what is right. Pastor Henry Ward Beecher said, the church is not a gallery for the exhibition of eminent Christians, but a school for the education of imperfect ones. That's what a church is. It's not a museum. It's a hospital. It's a place where people that have needs can come, and they can get whatever those needs are taken care of. 
not just by God, but lifted up as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our calling too. Paul was not saying, just go pray about it for these people. He was saying to physically be involved in the restoration. The Thessalonians were to practice a form of tough love to warn their idle brothers and sisters, but while doing that, they were not to treat them with hostility. They weren't to get mad at them. If somebody does wrong at church and messes up and maybe does something just real bonehead stupid, we don't kick them to the curb. We need to be as gentle in rebuking others as we would want them to be with us. Having a good work ethic is upheld all throughout the Bible as both the expected and acceptable norm of life. Honest work for honest pay. One of the well-known Proverbs is found in Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. It's the proverb of the ant and the sluggard. Let's read that. I love this translation. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and be wise. This is the New Living Translation. Even though, this is talking about the ants, even though they have no prince, governor, or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering food for winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? I want you to learn this lesson. A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. And this passage, while it might sound pretty basic, maybe even comical, it, its deeper contrast is this, it, it speaks of this industrious, hardworking ant whose labor and planning for the future provides provision for the future. And it contrasts that against the slothful person who falls prey to poverty and need because they didn't do anything. You say, well, this is an odd sermon. Well, it's, as much as it applied to the Thessalonians, believe it or not, it still applies to us today. And there was a reason why it was left in the Bible for us today. So since it's there, let's just look at it. The concept of, of cause and effect when it comes to working, like we just read in Proverbs, is, is not a, an Old Testament principle. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus never attempted to become wealthy as a professional religious person. Instead, it seems that for the, historically, from best we can tell, up until about the age of 30, he embraced a carpenter's trade, one that he learned from Joseph, his earthly father. Even in the selection of his disciples, his closest followers, it seems that he shunned the, the company of priests and prefer, preferred to choose hardworking people like fishermen. They were rough. Look at Peter. Lots of mistakes. Very impetuous. Spoke way before he thought many times. Probably said some choice words in there from time to time. He was a fisherman. But it seems that Jesus preferred those type of people who had some rough edges than those who were professional at being a Christian. Paul even used his himself as an example here as to his conduct when he was in Thessalonica, saying that he and his companions had worked hard day and night as they taught the people of Thessalonica. They could have demanded otherwise. Paul said, he goes, we could have done something different. But they earned the food they ate. They paid the, their own way. They consciously 
set an example of industriousness by following the rule that Paul had set down that those who were unwilling to work would not eat. There's a concept here that I, I believe we as parents, grandparents, and as leaders in the church need to teach children starting at a young age. Now, let me, let me add this because this is important. Paul was not referring here to people who could not work. He was clear that he was writing about those who were unwilling or those who refused to work. There's a big difference there. There's a story about a mother who walked in on her six-year-old son, finds him crying. She said, what's the matter? He said, I just figured out how to tie my shoes. The mom said, well, honey, that's wonderful. Why are you crying? The little boy replied, because now I'll have to do it for the rest of my life. I'm pretty sure that I've met some people who were afraid to go to work at a young age out of fear they'd have to do it the rest of their life. But Paul brought this concept about that we are to do what we can. We are to work while we can. Not to just sit back and say, let somebody else do it. While most of this section of Paul's letter dealt with a troublesome minority of idlers, he also had words for others. These were words of commendation. For those who were working, he said, don't ever get tired of doing good. And the implication here is that they had been doing good all along. And he was just urging them to continue to do this regardless of the circumstances. Paul knew the struggles of the Christians of his day. He lived through them himself. But while pointing out the mistakes of those who were being idle, he also encouraged those who were doing the right thing not to give up, not to look around and say, well, if nobody else cares, why should I? I'm not doing this all by myself. Let me say this. The devil uses that against us. When we think those thoughts... If nobody else wants to do it, then why should I bother? I'm not going to do this by myself. When the truth is, you're not by yourself. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, probably because I've sat here, right here, by myself with nobody else in the building, and said those words. I'm not doing this by myself. If nobody else wants to do this, why should I bother? But, but you're the pastor. I'm still a human. And there are times when you look around and you don't, you don't really see everything that everybody's doing. But let me tell you what happens. A lot of times that's just me feeling sorry for myself. But 
But in some of those times when I feel like I am just tired of, of doing all of this, I'll get an alert on my phone. We have security cameras. And I'll get an alert on my phone that there's someone out here at the church. I'll open it up. I'll see Pamela, Serena, others out here running the vacuum cleaner. I've opened it up. Seen Sister Cruz out here coming in the door by herself. No one out here. No one knows she's here. Walking with a cane and going through this building and picking up trash cans one at a time and carrying them to the big trash can and dumping them. I see on Tuesday morning the steady stream of people in and out of the building with Meals on Wheels. And so many other times I see people out here doing things. And in those times, Lord, I'm sorry. And I have to repent because it was the devil. He was trying to discourage me by making me feel all alone. And the problem is it, it's, we need to listen to what Paul was saying here. Don't get tired of doing good. Whatever it is that you're doing for the Lord, don't let the devil tell you that it doesn't matter. Don't let the devil tell you that you're the only one working and you're the only one that cares because it's not true. I've had people tell me they have never attended a church. Andrew and I had breakfast a couple months ago. He said, I have never seen a church where we had as high of participation in volunteers. And he's right because most churches you have about 10% of the people doing all of the work. At High Point Church, I would say we've got well over 50% of the people that are involved in something. That's unheard of. Amen. Don't get tired of doing good. And that's way off my notes, but we might get discouraged. We might be drained. We might get tired. We, there might be times when we phase out of one role in service into another, but we must never stop using our gifts in his service. In the very middle of serving God, we can become tired, but never get tired of doing good. In Paul's writing to the Galatians, he said something very similar to what he said in 2 Thessalonians. He said, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Don't give up. Don't get tired of working. The church is referred to as a body in the Bible as a body where each member has a responsibility or function. And while these functions cannot all be the same, they are all vital for a church to be healthy. 
Church membership is not a spectator sport where a few perform many works. A smoothly running church, a smoothly functioning church has a place for everyone. While we are encouraged to continue, regardless of circumstances, we also need time to relax and rest so that we can fulfill those responsibilities. Rest is not what Paul was speaking against. Idleness needs to be clearly distinguished from leisure or relaxation. Far too many pastors and church workers burn out from the constant busyness that is often required of them. If we look in the Bible, we see that there was times when even Jesus took a break and withdrew from the crowd in order to rest. God does not want us to work ourselves to death, but he does want us to do whatever he has commanded us to do. Now, before somebody takes what I said and twists it into something I didn't say, let me say this. Everybody hold on. We have church here two times a week. Most folks are here one time a week. So while I say we all need to rest, please consider this. Every week has 168 hours in it. So if at all possible, please try to find some time during those 168 hours to rest as opposed to the hour and a half we spend here on Sunday morning. And then say, well, you told me to rest. And we'll move on. There are times when you take a break. I get that. Another thing to consider is the way we approach our work, whether it's at work at a secular job or our work for the Lord, is that it can have a positive effect on those around us. That means that we as Christians need to display excellence in our actions and our attitudes to non-Christians. A consistent witness will win more people to the Lord than almost any other thing we can do. Doing your job or, or doing everyday things in life in a godly, Christ-like way can often be the best witness we can offer. And many times, especially initially, it can be more effective than trying to teach someone a six-week Bible study. Just living a Christ-like life. After all, if you say you're saved and your life doesn't look any different than theirs, why would anyone want to hear about the Jesus you say you serve? One of the best examples is, is something that is it's a quote often attributed to Martin Luther. He said, the Christian shoemaker does, not, does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Let me say that again. The Christian shoemaker does, not, does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. So here's some questions we need to ask ourselves in closing. Are we good examples of a maturing believer? Do our attitudes need some adjusting? Do we become angry when others around us try to wiggle out of doing their part of the work? Do we resent the lack of recognition that we receive? Paul said, never get tired of doing good. Never get tired of doing good. I assure you that God sees the work that you do even when nobody else notices. He will not forget your efforts. Each of us must live in a manner that, both in church and in the world, that Christ will be pleased with us until he returns for his children. In today's scripture, we have seen that Paul 
described two types of people in the church in Thessalonica. Some things don't change, even after a couple thousand years, because those two types of people still exist today. So what is our choice? The choice is completely ours, as we talked about at the beginning of this sermon. There are rewards and consequences for the choices we make. So as Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in well-doing. I know that if we had to do it on our own, there would be times when there's no way we could continue. But the good news is that you're not doing it alone. Paul told the believers in Thessalonica, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. That promise is for us today as well. When we are faithful, when we make the right choices to follow him and to obey his commands, God has promised to protect us and give us strength to accomplish everything he's called us to do. So no matter how hard the battle may get, no matter how overwhelming life stuff may feel, rest if you must, but don't quit. Because the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. There are times when all of us can become weary. And maybe we look around too much. And if that's you, let me say this to you today. If God has called you to a ministry, regardless of what that ministry is, whether it is at this pulpit, whether it's at the front door of the church, whether it's Meals on Wheels, emptying trash cans, running a vacuum cleaner, painting gospel rocks, whatever it is, whatever ministry God has called you to, don't become weary in well-doing. Don't become distracted. Don't look around and say, well, I wish somebody would help me. You have help. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you. Look to him. If you have to put blinders on so you can focus on what you're doing, then put blinders on and focus on what God has called you to do. Don't look around at what somebody's not doing. I have learned, especially in these last couple years since COVID, somebody told me you'd be a lot better off if you spent your time focusing on those who are here as you did on those who are not. And that's a hard thing to do.
But the truth is, I am grateful for everyone who's here. I am grateful for everything that you do. We are just getting started. We're just getting started, y'all. I, I know what God has shown me that he has a head for High Point Church and it's spectacular. Don't be weary in doing good. Don't ever get tired of doing what's right. Do what God has called you to do. Would you stand? We've prayed, I think, for most everybody here today, but if, if you need prayer, these altars are open. If you've, if you've never made a start to live for the Lord, these altars are open. Someone will meet you here and pray with you. More than anything, I want to see everyone here in heaven. That's the most important thing. Let's just pray today. Lord, today, we are grateful for what we have felt in this place. We are grateful for the miracles that you have performed. We are grateful for the miracles that you are still performing in lives and hearts. Lord, today, we are grateful for, for your blessings to us and the strength you give us to, to be able to work for you and the calling that you've placed on our lives so that we can reach out from this place and reach those who have never heard the gospel message. Lord, today I pray that you would give us strength to continue on. Help us not to become weary. Help us not to become tired in doing good. Give us strength. Renew our strength. Lord, even a greater calling on our lives than we've ever had before. For those who have not made that step yet, Lord, I ask that you would just draw them to you and speak to their hearts. Draw every one of us closer to you than we've ever been before. Help us to take what we've heard today, carry it with us as we leave this place. We'll ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our blessing today, you just stretch your hand out. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. God bless you. We love you.